Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. In fact, we try to think as infrequently as possible. <laughs> yes. Dep- depends on the day. We haven't even done the thinking for ourselves. <laughs> you look, look forward to this episode. Why are you even listening to this? This is insane. Uh, reconsider. Um, what are we talking about today? Yes, right. So... Today, we're going to be talking about something that's been on a lot of people's minds for the last couple of years, uh, and it really hasn't gone anywhere, which is the refugee uh, the refugee crisis, the refugee situation in Europe. Before we get into that, uh, just some brief housekeeping. Uh, we would like to remind everyone that we have a cabinet, which a reconsider cabinet, and all that is is folks who would like to help the reconsider mission uh, join on... A, a call to help with business matters and stuff like that uh, once a month and um, get to pick our minds for a number of things. But we're adding a new perk for cabinet members. What is this perk, yes. Eric? Well, what a lot of people actually want to do is just sit down and talk about politics with us for a little bit because people say, oh, well, you guys you know, spend all your time thinking about this stuff and you're good at reframing. And there's just all this stuff where you don't talk about it on the podcast and I'd love to just chat with you for 10 minutes, 15 minutes on it. So what we're adding is a monthly politics call where you get to hang out with me and Xander and we talk about the politics topic of your choice and you get to pick our brain and you can give us your thoughts. Uh, these might even turn into episodes going forward. So we're really excited. Our first one starts uh, tomorrow. Well, on time of recording, it will have already happened. So if you want to join the Reconsider Cabinet, go to patreon.com slash reconsider. It is one of the perks for uh, donating, to the, do- donating to the show. If you don't want to join the Cabinet but still want to kick in and help out the Reconsider mission, we subscribe to the Dan Carlin model, a buck a show, and that's all we ask. So check that out at patreon.com slash reconsider. Then, of course, we are also on the social medias, which is, I'm sure, how everyone's actually calling it nowadays. Uh, The Twitters, the Facebooks, at ReconsiderPod on both. Check us out there. We post interesting content as well as content um, information on the show, uh, all of that good stuff. And we're pretty good at replying. Yes, we will actually, uh, you know, get into discussions online. 
Last thing before we get started, I have a correction from the last episode about gun deaths. So if you recall, I talked about the bump stock, which was one of the critical items in the shooter's repertoire. I was wrong about a very key mechanical detail, and thank you to uh, one of my gun enthusiast friends and listeners for talking to me about this. So what I talked about with the shake weight analogy of having to shake the gun, that is called bump fire. And... That is bump fire without a bump stock. So the shake weight part is the exhausting part. That's why they make shake weights. It just takes a lot of energy to do that. But if you use the stock, the stock itself actually uses the recoil from the round firing to wiggle the gun rather than you having to wiggle the gun like a shake weight. So it still requires some stamina and training and skill, but a whole lot less stamina than it would if you were just shaking the gun itself. So thank you to listener Rick for pointing that out and helping me do the follow-up research. With that, let's get going. So this show on refugees is actually a request from Pam, one of our patrons. So she pledged the level, the cabinet member, she pledged the level that gets you your own episode. And we really liked how she framed her initial question, which is, how is the Syrian refugee crisis related to the rise of anti-immigrant sentiment in both the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, and also, as we talked about it, she she wanted us to think about other models we have for integrating new immigrants uh, that have very different cultures from the place that they're immigrating to. Are, are there limits to how many new different people that a culture can take on? And if so, what are those limits? So we're going to, rather than just give you an answer, we're going to start looking through uh, what's been going on in Europe, in the United States, in particular with respect to refugees and Muslim migrants, uh, and we're going to look at a few models for how you know different people think about taking in refugees. And so, of course, the most interesting place to look at right now is not the United States. It is Germany. Right. In 2015, Germany implemented this open-door policy for refugees that were fleeing the Syrian civil war, and this was generally applauded. It was seen as a positive step towards, you know, helping out a part of the world that was suffering. Germany brought in far more Middle Eastern refugees than any other European country, gave them a place to stay, albeit, you know, not particularly luxurious ones, but a place to stay nonetheless, an allowance, and taught them German, all on the taxpayer dollar. And so the media and, and many other countries from the rest of the world were were really bowing down to what Germany was doing here. Uh, The Los Angeles Times said that, quote, Germany's open-door policy in migrant crisis casts nation in a new light. Uh, The Sydney Morning Herald said, quote, Angela Merkel hailed as an angel of mercy. And so, you know, other Western nations were really impressed with what Germany was doing and, and quite amazed. But things, of course, got tough for Germany. And in fact, they were already pretty tough for Germany back in 2010 when their migrant rate, their incoming migrant rate was much lower and a substantially smaller portion of uh, their immigrants every year were Muslim. In fact, there were some high profile incidents uh, with some tension between some of the new migrants and some of the Germans that had been living there for longer. Uh, And Merkel said in 2010, quote, Of course, there has been the tendency to say, let's adopt the multicultural concept and live happily side by side and be happy living with each other. But this concept has failed and failed utterly. 
If we fast forward to 2015, even after, uh, just after Angela Merkel implemented the open door policy through the Bundestag, she said, quote, multiculturalism leads to parallel societies and therefore remains a, quote, life lie, which is a, a Germanism, uh, it more or less means sham in English. And so these are quotes from Angela Merkel, who is this angel of mercy that the Sydney Morning Herald called. Uh, and she's very strongly a number of times said, we cannot have a multicultural society. We must have a monoculturalist society. Uh, and Germany has been struggling with the different cultures uh, in its society since long before 2015. I'm going to start saying life lie in English. That's just that's far more poetic than sham. Uh, I mean, it's it's it is a very German thing to smash together two words uh, that are otherwise not very related into one word. And then they became this new beautiful word that actually has a whole lot of meaning. Um, I forget what book it is, but uh, Nat, who's who works with us at Reconsider, he has a, a coffee table book that is just a, a book of really cool German words that are lots of things smashed together. And usually the definition is like two paragraphs long. It's crazy. Yeah, if you find out what that book's called, let me know. I kind of want to buy it and we can throw it up on the website for folks who are interested. Sure. It's like if you've ever heard of Schadenfreude, it's like yeah, exactly. 30 words like that, but ones that you haven't heard of. Exactly. So coming back to Germany, in 2017, there was another parliamentary election, and the Christian Democratic Union, which is the party that Angela Merkel is part of, took a beating. In fact, they got their lowest percent of the vote share since 1949. Interestingly, they still, quote-unquote, won. They don't have a government yet because they don't have the majority. They're trying to put together a wacky coalition called the Jamaica Coalition. Go look it up. But what's interesting is typically when the CDU does not do well, it's because the socialists did pretty well. But this time, the socialists did not do well. The votes that the CDU lost did not go to the socialists. In fact, the socialists lost seats as well compared to how they did before. Where did all these votes go? Well, picking up 13% of the vote uh, and entering parliament for the first time in a long time and throwing a wrench in the works comes... Da -da -da, Alternative für Deutschland, or AFD, they are a highly anti-immigrant party, and they are riding a wave of sentiment that Germany has taken in far too many refugees, and it's causing a lot of problems for the Germans. Um, Merkel refuses to build a coalition with this AFD. Uh, they, she sees them as extremists, too far right wing, um, so she's not going to work with them. The socialists don't want to work with her, so she's trying to get the Green Party and essentially the German libertarians to join her uh, to form a coalition. Still working on it. Wish her luck. So this is just one of the stories that has come out in the last couple of years. Um, the political backlash related to the uh, immigration crisis in Europe so what what caused this this massive refugee flow to Europe, and what sort of broader effects is it having uh, not just on Germany but on Euro on broader European sentiments generally? Well, first let's look at uh, the Syrian civil war a little bit and, and sort of how the refugee crisis got started. So while Arab and Muslim immigration to Europe has uh, been fairly common for a while. 
the Syrian civil war really made the refugee crisis, uh, it took it to a whole new scale, just an order of magnitude bigger. I mean, we're talking about um, 7 million Syrians that are internally displaced within Syria, 6 million external refugees. This is from 2011 until today. Now, European countries have taken some, not as many as other Middle Eastern countries. So 3.2 million of these external refugees are in Turkey, 2.2 million are in tiny little Lebanon, and somehow they've been able to manage this this influx in population, as well as Jordan, which has taken in 1.2 million. Now, back in Europe, you have about over 600,000 in Germany, and um, fewer um, fewer in the other countries. Just for comparison, uh, Canada has about 43,000, uh, and that's a big number for Canada because Canada only has about 30 million people. The United States has taken in 16,000 Syrian refugees so far and isn't slated to take in more. And then there's a bunch of countries throughout Europe that have taken some tens uh, to hundreds of thousands. The folks that have the highest burden per capita in Europe, right, so f- per population, are uh, Croatia, Greece, and Hungary. Uh, and this this is actually causing a lot of consternation in their countries as well. Yeah, and one element of the refugee flow from the Middle East is that a lot of these people are coming across in boats across the Mediterranean, which leads them to land in some of the more poor southern countries in Europe, like Greece. And um, because of the lack of financial resources, these countries and and their own economic problems, not you know not to mention those. These countries really struggle to manage uh, a large number of refugees in a way that's even more pronounced than in Germany. And further, just because of the boat migration, many of these people are at risk of sinking. They need rescuing. And so you see countries like Italy beginning to patrol the Mediterranean a little bit more actively, um, some partly to mitigate the flow of refugees, but also partly to you know help uh from a humanitarian perspective. Another one of the complicating factors is that Greece, Italy, you know, Hungary, Austria, Germany, a lot of these other places are part of the Schengen region. And the Schengen zone is a free, uh, visa-free travel area. So if you're allowed to be in one country in the Schengen, you're allowed to be in other countries in the Schengen. Which would mean that if you get refugee status in one country, there aren't naturally border guards or fences or visa checks to keep you from sort of going wherever you want and and plopping down. One of the complicating factors is that because Greece and Italy are are poorer, they have less infrastructure uh, to be able to deal with refugees, and because places like Germany are potentially more able to deal with them, uh, migrants are moving by foot once they reach southern Europe to other parts. And uh, a lot of countries, since they really don't want migrants, especially Hungary doesn't want more, Poland doesn't want any, they're actually starting to put up fences and checks uh, within the Schengen region, which kind of throws a wrench in that whole idea. And so this crisis is such a big deal for the very idea of the European Union because... A lot of places don't want to deal with the refugees that the Schengen area is at risk. 
Yeah, and interestingly, this has led to a, a deal that's been cut between Turkey and the EU where Turkey agrees to take more refugees, especially from Greece, so that they don't then go on to migrate further west to Europe and they get some money, uh, Turkey gets some money in, in exchange for this. I, I think they also get excel, accelerated consideration for EU status, but it really doesn't seem like Turkey really wants to be in the EU anymore. That's a different story, but yeah, yeah it's uh, worth noting. Uh, so if you're thinking about the timeline here, you you might know that, for example, the Syrian war, which has caused a huge number of refugees, started in 2011. Uh, it's been you know going on for a very long time. And actually, in recent years, the death rate has been a little bit lower than it was when the fighting was higher early on. And you might be wondering, why have I heard about this Syrian refugee crisis more recently? Uh, it turns out that 2014 and 15 were when the numbers really started to tick up, the numbers of refugees moving into Europe. Uh, in fact, it coincided pretty well with the open door policy of Germany. In 2015, there was a massive spike of refugee applicants to Europe, but it wasn't only from Syria. It was, in fact, also from Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, and a number of other places. What happened was the countries that had been sending refugee applicants, uh, all of them between 2013, or most of them between 2013 and 2015, actually quadrupled and then some the number of people that were applying for refugee status. This happened about the same time as Germany's open door policy. So you had a whole lot of people moving through Southern Europe at the same time, whole lot of people moving into Germany at the same time, something that they had not experienced before. Uh, German right-wingers, as well as right-wingers in some other countries, blamed the open-door policy for this uptake in refugees. Right. So th this has been—the the last couple of years have seen a rise in right-wing parties in Germany, as well as throughout the rest of Europe. But as you noticed, many Middle Eastern countries have taken far more refugees than— European countries. So the question then is, why does this seem to be an outsized problem in Europe? Or maybe the first question is, is this really an outsized problem in Europe? Or is it just due to, you know, skewed media coverage? That's a good question. I mean, if we look to places such as Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, there are a number of things that are, even if we take the cultural factor out of it, there are a number of things that are very different. One of them is that the refugee camps are, you tend to be large uh, very separated, very organized, um, and a bit militarized. So if you look at them, a lot of them are literally tent cities and they have lots of guards and, and you see a lot of military movement around them because they said, look, we don't know who these people are. They're going to stay here. Um, integration is often very slow. And just people stay in these refugee camps for a very long time, often because they're close to Syria and such. Uh, the hope is to eventually repatriate them. So they're not often trying to integrate them. The other thing is what something that I've not done the research on is, you know, in places such as Jordan and Lebanon um, and sometimes Turkey, there is a higher incidence of sort of, quote, low grade terrorism. And I hate to use that word because it, it trivializes the matter, but it's much more common to see um, terrorist activity of some sort in these places. Could it be some of the refugees or could it be fighters Masking as refugees, I have no idea, um, but it is something that in the Middle East gets does get reported on a whole lot less. 
in part because people's expectations are that is going to be more common. So those are two things that are different about those countries, even if we don't take the cultural factor into account. Right, but of course the cultural factor needs to be taken into account because ultimately the countries in the Middle East that are taking Middle Eastern refugees have more similar cultures to the country of origin for these refugees than that of Europe. And this, I think, is kind of a taboo topic still to talk oh, about. definitely, yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to do our best, as usual, to be as neutral about it. But I, I really think it's, it's impossible to understand what seems to be an outsized reaction in Europe to Middle Eastern refugees without talking about uh, different cult- cultural aspects between the host countries and the countries of origin. Yeah, and when we say culture, I think we, we right now do mean culture. And there are a lot of different factors that are involved in in someone's culture. Some of it's their religion, it's their customs, the way they the way they act, uh, things they care about, values. We'll talk more about that later. But if people are thinking, "Hey, don't you mean race, or don't you just mean religion?" Um, I think the answer is if you know, it is hard to say what it is about a culture that is most important in how people react to it. But if you look at the whole thing, I think we're going to get a better understanding rather than assuming that it's one part of a culture or another part of a culture that is sort of the thing that people are keeping in their minds when they're reacting. Yeah, I think it's actually quite distinct, the idea of culture culture versus race versus religion. I think culture actually sits on top Mm. and those two are... Uh, subcategories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I read an interesting piece recently on French nationalism, on French nationalism, not just today, but the history of French nationalism and how it's, it has changed over time. And if you think about nationalism as the way that a nation state cultivates and builds a, a collective identity from, you know, potentially disparate parts of society, people, you know, poor and rich and, and different types of jobs and different types of backgrounds and heritages, that is a national identity. Now, differing cultures can can have a different process through which they develop this national identity, if there is even a national identity. And I think that there, there's there's even distinct processes uh, processes between how European countries have histo- historically built a sense of national identity and that of the U.S. So I think there's even a, another barrier here for U.S. audiences where it's just not natural for us to think about national identity in the way that it is for Europeans. And so we we things be, this particular issue becomes even more confusing. Because there's that one degree of separation. Why can't they just accept, you know, the, these refugees? What are, they're, they're just people, you know. But we're, of course, the U.S. is a country of immigrants. And that also ignores the fact that we've only taken 16,000 uh, refugees from the Syrian yeah, Civil War. Yeah, to be War. fair, there's, yeah. there's been a fair amount of consternation here about taking them. And one of the reasons we haven't run into quite as many problems is because we haven't taken a whole lot. Uh, we've taken a very small number compared to Europe. In countries in Europe that have taken a lot of refugees, there's, you know, it's a very slow cultural transformation process trying to incorporate people into these societies. I mean, a lot of these people are very grateful to be out of the war zone. And while a lot are very happy to integrate into this new society, others really don't want to. I mean, of course, there's a variety of opinions there, right? It's that you have millions of people. 
And then, you know, on the economic front, it's important to mention that there are welfare state problems in Europe. You know, who pays for the refugees once they're there and they can move anywhere in Europe? How do you monitor the flow? Should they have free immigration within Schengen like other European citizens or really anyone in Europe uh, who's traveling? You don't have to be a European citizen to travel freely within Europe. But the, but the issue of who's paying for housing these individuals for the fences and the beds and the cots and, and the accommodations of these refugee camps remains uh, really pretty highly visible and at the center of European politics right now. Yeah, so if, if you're familiar with the Calais jungle, uh, it's a makeshift refugee camp. So it's not an official one, or it was a makeshift refugee camp where a large number of refugees wanted very badly to go to the United Kingdom. And their plan was to somehow cross the channel. So cross underneath the channel in the tunnel by like hitching onto a truck or something. And so they basically marched their way through France. And I don't know why France was so bad that they decided they had to march their way all the way to the United Kingdom. Um, But they camped out there in order to try to get to the UK because they felt that the UK would give them a, a better shake or that they'd get something better in the UK than they would get in France, whether that was some sort of cultural acceptance or, or money or, or care of some sort uh, is unclear to me. But that kind of stress of where are these people going to settle down and who's going to pay for them is something that's very, very visible, especially with things like the jungle. You know, you imagine if you're sitting there going, hey, look, we don't want our welfare system being the one that pays uh, you see, you know, you're in the UK, you see the jungle and you think, holy smokes, there's like an army of people ready to march across. Right. So in places like Germany, where you had the alternative for Deutschland do uh, surprisingly well in the most recent elections and in Austria as well, you have these anti-immigration parties making these really large showings, um, protests and demonstrations and all that in response to all of these refugees that are coming into their country and the problems that the country's running into integrating these people or the problems that these um, these individuals think will come in integrating new refugees into the country. And this, this entire process, uh, well, rather, the entire refugee flow is really exacerbating a trend that already existed before 2011, which is the idea of Euroscepticism, or the idea that the European Union as a project uh, has either failed or is failing and that individual nation states that comprise the European Union need to start thinking about what a post-EU world or European order looks like. Eric, you want to do just a quick rundown on the idea of Euroscepticism so we're not using jargon? Yeah. So Euroscepticism is this idea that, you know what, the European Union just ain't gonna work for us long term. So for example, Brexiteers are Euroskeptical. They believe instead, look, of course, European countries can get along, but they should be separate countries. They should govern themselves. There shouldn't be a supranational or above national governing body in Brussels that makes laws that apply to everyone. Uh, No, you know, Brits should be making laws for Brits. The French should be making laws for the French. That's just how it should go. We're tired of... You know, we don't want Brussels taxing us and giving that money some wherever Brussels wants it to go. We don't want Brussels technocrats coming up with new regulations for us. We want more. We want power to be devolved from Brussels to our own capitals, 
for people in our own countries to have more political power and more say in what happens to their own country and for people outside of our country to have less say. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, so the issue of identity is really inherent in the um, discussion on the refugee crisis and how that is influencing the development of Euroscepticism in Europe. Now, this brings up really, I think, a broader question that if you boil down a lot of details in politics kind of comes down to this, which is the idea of in-group, out-group, you know, who, yes. who's part of the society that I identify with and to what extent is it a natural thing for humans to want to live uh, with humans that remind them of themselves or at least some collectively agreed upon conception of themselves, yes. right? Because I might be... Um, I don't know, a steel worker who lives in this one particular part of town in France, but I, I'm still French and I can identify at least on that level with, you know, someone who works in agriculture in the South, you know, at a vineyard or something like that. So what then are those identifying characteristics that together construct a notion of identity? And this is just, you know, a taster, but language... Mm. Um, how how language is taught in schools, religion and values, which you already mentioned. Grace is obviously one of them. Customs and manners, you know, is it appropriate to shake hands or is that seen as rude? If you've ever traveled to a part of the world uh, that's not particularly similar to your own country, like if you're from the U.S., perhaps certain areas in um, the uh, the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa, it's hard often to travel and not accidentally offend someone because you're just not familiar with, those cult- with uh, their cultural mannerisms and this is why i think the idea of culture or identity which i I do think can be used somewhat interchangeably ultimately supersedes and sits above just strictly race or religion which often this this conversation devolves into is a conversation of race or religion when really those are just two of many elements that fall into defining a social identity yes and the idea that 
the idea that people might want to live with people that remind them of themselves, that share a culture with them, is something that, you know, as we mentioned before, might be kind of taboo. You know, there might be a lot of people that sit there and go like, ooh, it, it would be bad. It's exclusionary, you know, to to feel that way. It, it makes people who happen to be there feel excluded. But the question is, you know, how much is that a real feeling that humans have? How much is, is it a natural thing rather than a taught thing? How much of it is a good thing versus a bad thing? And, and how much of it is something that can be changed? One way of... One way of thinking about it from an historical perspective that puts it in a bit of context is that after World War I, one of the most progressive thoughts coming out uh, was Wilsonianism. And in fact, it was so progressive that the world just wasn't ready for it. And Wilsonianism embraced the idea of self-determination. And what is self-determination? It's the right for a people uh, to rule themselves. And... You know, there are even there are even a lot of, you know, sort of very progressive thoughts of self-determination now. Perhaps Tibet should be willing should be free to rule itself rather than be part of China when quote Tibetans don't want to be. You know, I mean, there are even there are even people who believe that Hawaii should be free to rule itself or that there should be, you know, various groups of people that are part of these bigger nations that have lost rights, that have lost their community because they are sort of stuck being part of this bigger nation. And we can look at that and say, oh, but that's very, that's a positive thing. That's good. And when we hold those two things side by side, so on one hand, hey, people, you know, do we think people should have a right to, quote, rule themselves or lead themselves. And on the other hand, some people want to live with people who are like themselves, who are, are their people. What do we mean by people? Is it a culture? Is it an ethnic group? Is it a religious group? Um, and when is it a good noble thing for people to want to say rule themselves or be in a country of their own people? And when is it a bad thing? I think as an interesting aside, the idea of Wilsonian, uh, Wilsonianism, which is just named after President Wilson, who was president during World War One, came in part because after the end of the war, he or actually during the war, too. But he, he advocated the right of countries to, you know, live freely and not under the thumb or the rule of another country. And you know, a lot of the times this meant or it was, you know, subtly referring to the idea of German domination of the continent. People, you know, should not have to live under the thumb of, you know, a conquering power like that. However, at the same time, he used that same justification to argue for Germany remaining united after the war. And it's important to remember that Germany as a country only began in 1871. It didn't exist before. There was a loose confederation of German states. So Germany was a very new thing. And after Germany lost the war, France wanted to divide Germany up again because it, it knew that a unified Germany would at some point in the future represent a threat to it again. And Wilson actually argued against, against this. He said, no, you know, they're, they have a right to self-determination. They have a right to lead their country or, you know, guide their country as they wish. And there's almost no way that World War II could have begun without a unified Germany, which is just kind of like an interesting aside. So it's not like the idea of self-determination always plays out well, even though I think it sounds very good uh, yeah. in, within the framework of Western liberal ideas that we're very used to. But France definitely wanted to break Germany up, and arguably that would have helped prevent World War II, if not necessarily prevented it.
So that's that's my side. So in in Germany, we have Merkel, who led the open door policy, saying multiculturalism does not work. And what does she mean by that? Does she mean that she doesn't want different, you know, people who look different or, or speak a different language living in Germany or that they're not welcome? Probably not. What does Merkel possibly mean by it? Speculating a bit, and I'm only speculating a bit, I think, because she said multiculturalism doesn't work and then opened the open door policy for refugees. You know, her sense of thing is probably that she would want new immigrants to integrate into Germany by becoming German, which would suggest that they would, you know, adopt the German culture and become like other Germans. To frame up how to best deal with the migrant and refugee influx in Europe and to, you know, to think about how to deal with immigrants elsewhere in the world is, can multiculturalism work? Or is it sort of doomed to failure in a way that would mean that the only successful path is some form of integration in which people have to let go of their old cultures and ways of doing things and adopt new ones? We don't have an answer for this, but I think it's an interesting question. Xander, when we were prepping for this earlier, you seem to think that the United States was a good example of a multicultural society. Yeah, and again, it, it depends on how you define or identify the defining aspect of a culture because America is a society of immigrants. So by definition, many different cultures came here and became some sort of, some form of unified uh, America or American. So it, it, it seems like if, if you recognize the heritage of cultures within the U.S., then the U.S. is multicultural. However, I also think that you can say that any immigrant that, wants to come to the U.S. and um, truly be absorbed into the American culture uh, has to adopt certain types of mannerisms and uh, American ideals and all that. That doesn't mean they need to change who they are, but, it, you know, it, it kind of requires changing how you act at least a little bit, at least in public. So, again, it depends on how you define multi multicultural, but I definitely think that the U.S. is as good an example of a multicultural society as any out there. Yeah, what I think is interesting about the United States is that one could make the case that the United States is very multicultural, not even necessarily because of its immigrant population or not along what we think of as conventional lines, you know, such as race or religion and such like that. I think a good example of how fractured the U.S. culture is, is if you go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you ask them if they would love if all of their neighbors were from rural Texas, they might scream themselves into a coma. And the same way, vice versa, if you go to rural Texas and you say, hey, do you want all of your neighbors to be from Cambridge, Massachusetts, they would lose it. And why is that? Well, because these people are very, very different from each other. They, ha they seem to have different values. They like different things. They talk different. They, they dress different. Their music's different. I mean, you know, there's... There's very little that binds them together other than this idea of being American and maybe this set of American values that they at least share. Um, and we could go on, you know, we'll, we'll leave aside the 
we'll leave aside for now the aside of is the United States, you know, sort of drifting apart more than it used to, or are we losing those ideals or anything like that? But we can think of all sorts of different regions in the United States that have very, very different cultures that do things their way. And they don't really want to, you know, they just hate it if one day they woke up and, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of people from a different part of the United States, much less a different country that look different and don't speak their language and, you know, don't practice the same religion, all that stuff. Put all that aside, just people who live in different places and do things differently. If those became their neighbors, they would it would be a bad day. Um, and I think a lot of us in the United States can sympathize with that and say, oh, God, yeah, there'd be a bunch of Americans that I'd hate to live next to. Um, and so, you know, that that gives me the question of is the United States sort of are we a, a single multicultural society or are we are we maybe even a fractured, you know, multicultural you know, regionalist society, right? Or, or are we a country of many different societies that have their own regional binding um, and that are monocultural within a space, but just don't mix with each other much? I don't know what you think, Xander. I mean, that's as good a question as you can ask, and I don't necessarily have an answer for it. So I think maybe with that big question we'll we'll let our think uh we'll let our listeners think for themselves on that one because i certainly don't Fine. have an answer all right but if we pivot back to germany and and apply you know the idea of multi or the lens of multiculturalism to german society what can we learn well for starters you can use a demographic filter and just say okay how many people are there and where do they come from about five and a half percent of germans are muslim and it's growing um, about 9% of all newborns in Germany have or had Muslim parents in 2005, according to the government. It's a higher rate of birth of Muslims in Germany. And you can compare that to about 7.5% of the French population is Muslim and less than a fraction of a percent in Poland. And I think the case of Poland is interesting because Poland is particularly anti-immigrant. They have, oh, yeah. they have really not wanted to take any immigrants any refugees in the last couple of years and at one point germany was kind of like prodding poland like hey you know you're part of the eu too you need to you need to kind of open up your doors a little bit and, and share the burden here and poland was particularly angry at germany for giving it a lesson on moral righteousness yes <laughs> yes they they brought up the how many years old now is it they brought up the 70 or so year old question and uh, gave them a, an historical shot below the belt um, in response. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty bad spat as far as European spats go. So Germany only has about 5.4% Muslim population, which is higher than the United States, although you know, the United States has a much larger black population, much larger Asian population, substantially larger Hispanic population. You know, And if you look at the predominant religion in the United States of Protestantism, it's actually you know, shrinking all the time. There's a lot of Catholics, there's a fair number of Muslims, Jews, uh, non-religious people, stuff like that. What's interesting about Germany is that even though the total percentage uh, Muslim population is fairly low, a majority of Germans say that they cannot afford to take more refugees, and the vast majority of refugees coming to Germany have been Muslim, and that in Germany, 29% of people... Uh, admit that they view Islam unfavorably in their country, uh, which is higher than the United States. And 
what this suggests is that it is not a percentage of people who have a religion or seem to be different so much that is is at the crux of the problem. What it appears is that the rate of change seems to be a big part of the problem, right? And so, you know, the United States compared to Germany has much more religious difference, racial difference, national, you know, uh, heritage difference. But Germany is having more trouble um, with the people who aren't part of the predominant group. And uh, this popped up very recently, and it suggests that it is just due to the rate of change, how visible it is, you know, how much people are waking up one day and people next to them are different, um, or some of the high-profile, you know, higher-profile problems uh, that have come up. And so we have to be asking ourselves, you know, would the number of Muslims in Germany seem to be a problem for them if the rate of change, if the rate of influx was lower? Yeah, and I think just for the sake of historical context here, it's it's because we're talking about anti-Muslim sentiment in Europe, and I guess in the U.S. too, it's important to keep in mind the thousand-plus-year-long history of conflict between the Muslim world and the Christian world. And this was defined by religion, but also by geography and different cultures and, and the way certain things unfolded in history. But in the, um, the seventh century, when the, the Muslim conquests occurred, this just spread a new society, a new, um, well, empire isn't the right word, but a new state very rapidly in the course of a hundred years Several hundred years later, you had some of the Christian uh, countries, they weren't really countries yet, but the Christian states in Europe saying, okay, we, we need to push back against this because at that point, all of the Western European states had become fractured. It was the Middle Ages. There was no big Roman Empire to push back against the Muslims with. So then you had this thing called the Crusades where the emperor in uh, Constantinople now Istanbul would say, hey, you know, we need some help here. We're getting besieged by the Abbasid Caliphate or, or whatever entity it was at the time. And uh, the Pope would say, okay, we'll get some people together. But, you know, you're not really Catholic, you know. Uh, and the emperor would be like, yeah, I know, I'm Orthodox, but we're Christians, <laughs> right? Doesn't that count? And the Pope's like, man, I don't know, you tell me. So a lot of the times the emperor would actually convert from Orthodox to Catholic just to get the Pope's support for a crusade to come help out in Constantinople. But... I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. Um, but the Crusades were definitely offensive, but taken from sort of a defensive posture because uh, first there was the Muslim conquests and then the Christian states pushed back. And then in the 15th century, uh, well, really in the, in the 14th century, early 14th century, the Ottoman Empire was established and basically became the Muslim power in the Middle East up until 19. 18, 1923. And when the Ottoman Empire fell, all of a sudden there was no big powerful entity in the Middle East. And so for the 20th century, really, and, and frankly before that as well, the, the Muslim world as an entity has not congealed and been able to push back in the same way that it had for thousands of years. But that's a new phenomenon. There, there has been conflict between these two worlds for almost 1500 years so yeah. when people are like oh well you just uh hate muslims and that's like a new thing it's important to remember that this back and forth has been going on for a long time it's not new and that contextualization i think is useful yes 
So how do we, or how can a state deal with the refugee crisis that's going on in Europe now? There's a couple of different approaches. Um, the first is is a local approach. So you attempt to solve this issue in a sort of a decentralized manner. Um, give money to countries that are sharing an outsized burden in in the um, in taking in refugees and helping them resettle and um, kind of going from there, so long as they have the resources, letting them handle all the specifics. Yeah, and a big part, one one option within that is to say, you know what, some refugees are pouring out of an area. Let's make sure that they all stay, that they all have a good reason to stay in areas where they speak the language, where they have you know cultural institutions that they're familiar with, religious institutions that they're familiar with. Let's give money to those areas, right? So in this model, you might have Europe saying there's a major refugee crisis, and you know Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, they they don't have the resources to handle it, and we want to help, right? We want to do our humanitarian duty. Let's send money over there so that they can either integrate these, you know, most of these people, or eventually resettle them. Um, and so that that could have been one approach that was taken. Another, which maybe we can call the libertarian approach, is just like, hey, let's just keep all borders open, and you know, societies will kind of figure it out uh, indirectly, but on their own, right? But of course, there are complications here too. If cultural integration is isn't working, what do you do? Just let that continue? Do you take uh, active intervention that kind of steps against the the notion of the of the libertarian approach, right? And um, what if these people who come into a new country are just so desperate? You know, they fled their country without any possessions, money, maybe uh, minimal skills, or maybe just not accreditations that will let the new country use their skills in that society if they're just starving. Who who takes responsibility then? And when does it become a moral burden or moral onus, perhaps, for the state to actually step in and, and do something directly? One approach, we can just call it maybe the middle way approach, is an approach you might think of in, say, Canada, where you take a, you know, not a small number, but a, but not an overwhelming number, of refugees and you spread them out and you spread them out specifically because, you know, again, wherever these refugees are from, you're saying we don't want to create a parallel society. We don't want to create, you know, an area of, of, you know, folks that are, that are more like where they're from than they are us. We want to give them sort of every reason and every opportunity to integrate with who we are. And so we're going to take them, we're going to spend some money, but we're going to make sure everyone's spread out, that they've got a nice place and that their neighbors have all lived here for a long time, or at least most of them, uh, so that it can be, you know, better integrated into, uh, into our society. And so Canada is, is one example of this that I happen to know. Uh, I'm sure there are other countries that are doing it. Possibly the only complication with this is if you spread people out too thin, then they're completely without sort of, uh, you know, kind of cultural cohesion um, or they're completely without sort of cultural foundations to stand on. So, for example, if, you know, you're of a particular religion and then you end up in the middle of nowhere where the only religious institution is some completely different religion, you're kind of like, oh, boy, well, this sucks. So there has to, this middle way approach attempts very hard to strike a balance between giving people enough density such that you know they've got 
they they're able to continue practicing their religion they're able to continue practicing a number of their traditions uh but doesn't make it so dense that you create you inadvertently create and incentivize a truly parallel society with people that are going to struggle to integrate or not have the incentives to integrate into your society so the takeaway from this conversation is that it's a really complicated issue. It's a complicated problem to solve. It, in fact, maybe a problem with no solution. And that I think is perhaps one of the grimmer things to recognize in, in the world of, of politics and policy is that sometimes there are no good choices. But we've, we've talked about several potential choices and maybe some of these are good solutions. We'll leave that to you and your friends and your family to discuss on your own and um, hopefully some of this context has been helpful helpful in rethinking the problem from perhaps a somewhat broader historical perspective yeah one of the things i realized while doing some research for this is it's really easy to throw rocks right so you see you see one country that's not taking a whole lot of refugees and you go Ugh, Oh God, you know, you guys are heartless. Or you see another country that took a lot of refugees and then suddenly a big anti, you know, anti-migrant party gets a lot of power and you go, oh gosh, where did those, where did those people come from? They're terrible. And I think that it's so easy when you're in a comfortable position, when you're not having to, you know, get in the grit of it. And when you're not thinking so much about the, the, sympathetic side of human nature that wants you know where people want to live with people who are like them and and have that you know have the belief that the future is going to also be full of people who are like them um i think it's easy to throw rocks and say man everyone all these people are terrible i'm sure if it were me and i were suddenly transplanted to you know i don't know cambridge massachusetts or or rural Texas, I would be just fine. I'd just get on with everyone and I wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, that rock throwing is easy, but when you get into the thick of it, it gets really complicated really fast. And I think this is one of those things about human nature that we have to be able to have a discussion about, uh, you know, as, as a group to be able to create effective policy to deal with it. So we'll leave you with one thing. If you're interested in advertising for, I don't know, whatever product or show um, that you might manage or brand that you might manage um, on the Agora Podcast Network, which is Reconsider's Podcast Network, uh, you can. You can go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and there will be contact information for uh, the folks on our network that handle advertising and all that. And it's it's great. We've done it before on Reconsider. We did it recently with a show called Tides of History. And the way it works is basically everyone on the Agora Podcast Network helps advertise and put um, uh, bring the message out for these really interesting shows that um, or or products that are going on. I ended up listening to like all of Tides of History. It's now one of my favorite podcasts. So yeah, me too. It's it's it's, it's pretty cool that that we get to get exposed to some of these things. So agorapodcastnetwork.com if that's something that interests you. With that, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, I know that this is, again, often a taboo topic, and it's definitely one of the things that I've appreciated most about Reconsider and, and the audience in particular that we've cultivated is that this is a place where we can have some tough conversations that you know I, I think get us thinking in a really important way. So as usual, and in particular with issues like this, please don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. 
pause, and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Andrew signing off. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.